0: standard by three earth sector we have unfinished business with the federation oh no not again
1: why earth sector
0: would you rather stay here
1: you make them sound like the only alternatives they are for us Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 28, our Series B retrospective. Yes. So, this is a chance for us to look back at Series B, what we thought of it overall, what we thought the strengths, the weaknesses, our favourite episodes, our least favourite episodes, our series special regular segments. Yep. And just all the points we didn't get to cover in individual episodes. Let's do it. So, Richard, we'll start off with a very straightforward question. Series B of Blake 7, in a sentence or two, did you like it?
0: I did very much enjoy it. If you'd asked me going into the podcast, I would have said Series 2 of Blake 7 is my favourite of the four series. I remember as a kid really buying into the whole arc thing, particularly in the latter part of the season of, of Finding Star 1. Look, well, That probably would have been more when I saw him as sort of a 12-year-old during the repeats probably than when I was really little. Yep. Watching them back, it is, and thinking about the arc, it is actually a, a interesting slice of TV production at the time. I think really how you do an ARC in the pre-VHS era.
1: I agree with all of that. It answers the question I set. I absolutely enjoyed the series. (laughs) I think it is very, very good. I think what really stood out for me is that, yes, there were a number of classics, but there were classics in the first series as well. Yep. What stood out for me in this one is that the weak episodes tend to be of a better standard than the weak ones in series one.
0: There is a feeling towards the end of Series 1 that they're really just getting over the line yeah, and they're just getting these done just to make it to the end before they have to go out.
1: Yeah, The money's running out, the enthusiasm's running out as much as they try, time is against them. They're
0: just tired and I think it doesn't really build to anything whereas this has a very clear crescendo really at the end of the series.
1: Yeah, and there's also a feeling they know what they're doing, they know what works, what doesn't work. And so for that reason, look, there are weak episodes in this and we will talk about them later on.
0: There are. I would have watched the episodes in Series B, I think, more probably than any of the other seasons. If I'm probably just chucking one on just to have a look at, probably would be something like a Countdown or a Star 1 or something like that. And, And look, they were as good as I remembered them being. But even something like The Keeper that I really hadn't watched for a long time before we watched it for this. That was actually a lot better. So I think, yeah, overall, this has been a great season.
1: And you've sort of segued there neatly into my next question, which was how did it compare to our expectations? Mm. And maybe I'll carry on the thought then there. Like you, this is a series where a lot of the episodes I've seen a lot more. Mm. I've certainly skipped a few of them. We've discussed those as we've gone on. But I would have seen more of these episodes more often than I had probably for certainly Series 1 or Series Yeah, so how did it compare to my expectations? Series A, I think we both made the point that it actually stood out better than we
0: remembered it. I think one thing with Series A, and it was probably a point I was going to make a bit later, but I might make it now. I did say at the season A overall that my player of the season was Paul Darrow because of the way you know he really grasped the bit between his teeth and just ran with it. I probably actually should have revised that. I think my player of Series A probably actually should have been Terry Nation. Yeah. Because I think one thing he does do, and even allowing for the fact that it runs out of steam a bit towards the end, there is probably that sort of uniformity of ideas and feel of the series, I think, in Series A that you probably don't get here, which is something I'd forgotten a bit, but watching them back in sequence, whilst I think there are some very good episodes in Series 2 and some of the best episodes of the series... There is more of a a dichotomy, for want of a better word, of some of the ideas and some of the feel and the tone of the episodes presented, I think.
1: Yeah, and so when I look at Series 2 compared to my expectations, I would simply say that it remained as good as I remembered it. Mm. There were definitely episodes in here, though, that are not ones I've watched as frequently, and in each case, I did find that they were better than I remembered. Not necessarily in a couple of cases they were particularly good, But there were performances in there, or there were ideas in there. There was stuff in there that I could at least enjoy.
0: Yeah, with the weaker ones, and I think particularly if you haven't watched them for a while, there is probably that tendency just to focus on the the crap stuff, basically, and forget about maybe some of the good, because there is good in each of the episodes, I think.
1: There was nothing here that I really, really disliked. But again, we'll talk about our favourites. But I do agree with you about the variability of this. Mm. It's very obvious watching them now. I think even if we didn't have our copy of the program guide next to us, we would have probably just picked up that there were new writers involved. Yeah. Some of the variations in characters, Villa particularly, he goes from being incredibly well-written to just really badly written.
0: Yes, I would make the point, and spoiler territory... It gets worse for Villa, I think, as we go on, but...
1: It does, but that was a very telling sign that there was some variation behind
0: the camera. Yes, different writers clearly have picked up on different aspects of the character, shall we say.
1: That's right. And the final point I'll make here is that I was very, very surprised about just how well this did stand together, Mm. in that I kind of knew that, yeah, there was some arc stuff here, and certainly the the build-up towards Star 1 I was very familiar with, but... Watching it now for the podcast, each episode in order, one after the other, and looking at it with the sort of detailed lens that we're looking at these for the podcast, there were lots of little bits in there, lots of lines, lots of references, and even character arcs that I really hadn't appreciated as well. If you're watching Countdown and then you go and watch Gambit and then you go and watch Star 1, it's not as good as if you watch all of the episodes that come in between. And I really picked up on not just the scripting ideas, but... As I said, those character arcs, that real slide of Blake from freedom fighter to just ruthless fanatic, and the way that Gareth Thomas's performance, as we've noted, gets more and more aggressive, more and more dark, and more and yep. more angry. Even Blake in series one, he was ruthless to an extent, but there was a certain level of compassion and bigger picture to the point in The Keeper where he's just yelling at a dying old
0: man. Yes. We probably will touch on that, I think, as we go through some of the plot threads but I think there is enough there really to reward the long-term viewer. Oh, yes.
1: So we'll ask the question then, where is Blake 7 now? Yep. One thing that really stood out for me about this series, and I think that you can detect the hand of Chris Boucher in this, the idea that Blake every week goes up against the Federation, Servile Travis, is one that is not ignored, but it is certainly toned down a bit. I think that there are less overt blake versus the federation episodes in this than there are in series one and there are more very obviously just general sci-fi ideas in here than there are in series one not to say series one didn't do it you get something like the web for example but even something like mission to destiny in series one you still kind of feel that federation vibe going through it Hmm. whereas in this one you get some episodes like redemption which are just completely out of there yeah And even when we're dealing with the Federation, I think this is very Chris Boucher, something like Shadow, it does push the world a lot further.
0: You get to see the other side of the coin, yes. The
1: same with Gambit. Okay, even Servalane and Travis are in Gambit, but it doesn't feel like a Blake versus the Federation episode. It's just that they're in this bigger, wider universe. Yeah. What about for you, Richard? Where is Series B in your mind?
0: This is a little hard, as we obviously know how things unfold from here. However, there's a lot of change across Series B, and I think at the end of Star 1, we're left with the idea that something big is happening, and that the universe is going to be different afterwards. Serverland's now grabbed the presidency, Travis is dead, and we lost Gan along the way as well, but the Liberator crew, and particularly Blake, have evolved from what we saw in Season 1, where they're just running from the Federation a lot of the time and making a few sort of token attacks, to now they really want to strike back and start doing some major damage.
1: Yeah, I think that that speech that Blake gives halfway through the series.
0: Look, we've been on the run for a long time. What have we achieved? Access to Federation ciphers that have been regularly recoded, a raid on Central, an empty pretense, talk of Star One, talk of an alliance, talk, 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 until now. Shivan and his friends, a senior Federation official. A chance our first real chance
1: and one free of violence and bloodshed. That's a really pivotal speech mm. in the series and you're right, it does go from that series B well, which far-flung little communications base can we sabotage today, through to what big master plan, actual attack on the Federation can Yes, make. Blake
0: is now ready to realise his idea of, you know, he says it right at the start of the series, he wants to tear the heart out of the Federation. He is now ready to do that.
1: Yeah, so it definitely fuels a much bigger sort of adventure, this series. Mm. But I think it also does embrace more general sci-fi tropes and does move away from some of those more Terry Nation, freedom fighter type tropes. And to give, I think, the obvious example that a lot of people pick on, the fact that they basically ditch the whole kitting up to go down they now just have space costumes
0: yeah that's right some of that's probably june hudson's influence as well which i think again is a discussion point we've got for a little later on
1: yeah and to me look for a series that we're praising we really have enjoyed that is something that i look back on now and i do find a little bit disappointing because something i did like in series one was that real sense of these are professional freedom fighters who wouldn't go and raid control in a ball gown (laughs) So I think that is, that is or a show... a red lobster suit. No. Well, <laughs> look, let's talk costumes now, because we're there. Right. There are some good stuff in there. I have said a couple of times, and I repeat it here, I think that Servland gets the best costumes we ever run in this series, and particularly the, not minimalist, but very simplistic gown that she gets in Pressure Point with the boater, that look. I think that is the perfect Servland sort of look. Sort
0: trench coat and the leggings, yeah?
1: Yeah, it's one that is glamorous mm. but isn't absurd. It looks smart and professional but still fabulous compared to something like in Gambit where she's got you know the great big red frill.
0: Yes, and, and you sort and of a go, dove. Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you sort of go, look, I mean that's glamorous, but would she actually wear that? No. At the same time, look, Paul Darry gets a couple of very nice costumes. I think the leather one he has at the start of the series is really good
0: with his leather flares. Yeah. Yes, he also has the red lobster suit. We did touch on this, I think, during the episodes. When June Hudson comes on, she did go through and pick up how she saw each of the characters. You know, Sally and had a figure that would allow her to wear lycra and something quite figure hugging
1: Yeah, Villa has that personal duality, so he's got those really broken, yeah. other things. Yeah, which is really, really interesting, and, like, I respect what she's doing, and maybe for Wandering Around the Liberator, I wouldn't mind it, but it does... Now, feel more like just another sci fi.
0: You do actually lead to ridiculous stuff like writing control in an evening gown, or Callie teleporting down to Horizon in the jungle wearing this sort of flowing white dress. Or, or
1: the low point, which I think is probably killer, where they're all just walking around in massive swathes of vinyl, or Michelin <laughs> costumes. Or I think, as we pointed out at the time, the firemen try to put out yes. a fire just sort of in great big silver. Well, at least it's silver,
0: but yeah. I'm also reminded of Shadow, where I think there are times the dialogue is drowned out by Avon's leather creaking. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, go on.
1: And so look, that's a shame, but on the other side, let's keep talking production just for a moment. The flip side of that is that, although there's not more money per se, a lot of the big ticket items from Series 1 don't need to be redone. So they already have the Liberator flight deck, they have the Liberator model, they have
0: the guns the and guns. the teleport bracelets oh, I, was, yeah. I was going to
1: say teleport bracelets but I think we know that to remake yeah, they a to lot more. more yes they did but the point is a lot of those big ticket things that just completely smashed their budget last yes, time yes indeed yep okay they do a little bit of repair work to the set but it's not nearly the same expense so that means that there is a bit more money for sloshing around in this series yep you get a little bit more location work that isn't just the same quarry you do get those changes of costumes you do get slightly bigger not necessarily guest casts although we do get some very good guest casts But different extras, for example. So you look at something like the casino in Gambit. Okay, it's very small for a casino. It's a BBC Studio casino.
0: But there are a lot of extras in there. There's a lot of extras. There's
1: a lot of big costumes. They've got Aubrey Woods. They've got John Leeson. It feels like money has been spent on this.
0: Yes. And as you say, look, they had more money. They probably also have a bit more time because they've changed the filming structure. You have two episodes in production at any given time. So, of course, you can just send one whole day, we're just going to smash through all the Liberator scenes for these two episodes. We can then forget about the Liberator, strike those sets, and now we can concentrate on just doing the scenes in Crankwit's Casino for the next day or two. That probably does free them up a bit from a production perspective. Yeah, we've
1: spoken during our episodes about the whole way that directors were doing two episodes, so they could do the location of their studio work. So... David Maloney is the producer as well, has worked out how to make the budget work. Yes. And I think it's very, very definite on screen that that is the case.
0: Yeah, there probably are some other aspects to it if we're going to stay on production. We're probably critical of George Benton Foster's work as we sort of discussed it during the episodes.
1: Yes, that's right. Although even then there were a couple of scenes that he did
0: that were very, very good. Yes, they were.
1: But there was a sense in a lot of his work of this'll
0: do. Yes. Whereas in season one, director like say Michael E. Bryant, yes. we were very positive about his work. He's trying to do something really different with a lot of his shots.
1: Although V. Lorimore does actually step up in this one. He's yes, he does. Probably the one who does some of the best work in this.
0: Yeah, show. and plus of course David Maloney gets involved in this one as well. Yes, so he's a very good director. Yes, particularly probably given they give George Benton Foster an episode like Pressure Point to direct, which was probably screaming out for a different director. So, If
1: I could change one decision about this series, it would be to keep Michael E. Bryant and particularly keep him for Pressure mm, Point. Yep. I think Pressure Point done by Michael E. Bride, or if they could have got him Douglas Canfield, yep. that would have been a phenomenally yes, good Yes,
0: I think it would. Probably having David Maloney direct what I think is the pivotal episode at the end of the series is a great move, as it turns out.
1: No, that actually worked out really, really well. <clears throat> Finally, Richard, you got some notes on special effects. Now, there were some changes... In the team, I believe?
0: There was a change in team. Ian Scoons, and I think we mentioned this in the Series 1 discussion, he wrote a somewhat critical memo. A very blunt and direct memo. Yes, to BBC management saying that really he felt they could have done so much better with the special effects if they'd been prepared to devote the time and money to it, and this could have been a real special effects vehicle with the result that he never works on Black 7 again. <laughs> but we do obviously get other members of the BBC's special effects department involved, probably most notably Matt Irvine, perhaps.
1: Yeah, look, Matt Irvine is very well known to fans of Doctor Who. Yep. He did a lot of work on that over, particularly the 1980s. And somebody who was marked, in the way Ian Screams was as well, they both had that very uh, deep passion for what they did. Yes. And that desire to go above and beyond and do what they could and where he had the chance to make an effect or a model really really good he really really wanted to, but at the same time he had stuff like Star One where you needed a thousand alien chips to do and he's got, you know, a broken hairdryer.
0: That's right. You have to be realistic about this is only going to be on screen for twenty seconds, so I can't blow the entire episode's budget on it. But I do think there is probably a a change in the way the SFX is inserted into the episodes probably in this, whereas Series 1, there is that attempt, certainly on Ian Schoon's part, to want to make this a real special effect vehicle. So you get these beautifully lit shots of the Liberator and you get these tracking shots as it's moving and all this sort of stuff. You don't really see that very much across the second series. There is some good model work in there. I'm thinking of something like the, the Shuttlecraft landing in Voice from the Past.
1: Yeah, and even the Liberator shots in Voice from the Past, we did highlight
0: at the time. Yeah, and that uh, running battle they're doing in Redemption, where the Liberator's being chased by the mini-Liberators. But on the whole, there really isn't probably the presence of the SFX, I don't think, in this series. There were in Series 1.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that they make some very judicious decisions about where to put the budget to give it the best look, And stuff like costume, extra sets, and particularly location filming that can be stuff that you use across a whole episode, Mm. as opposed to one special effect where, look, as you said, you can spend a huge amount of money and it's on screen for 10 seconds. Yeah. So do you really get your bang for your buck? So, look, we've talked about this being a very good season. We've talked about the lows being much higher than the other ones were, and there are lots of classics. We've said the budget's better. The ratings, though.
0: Yes. uh,
1: Lowest average of the four series. This is the lowest rated series. And the lowest rated episode of the series is in is in here.
0: Yes, it is. I'm pretty sure we did flag during the discussion on Redemption that one of the things that impacted this is they were going out on a different night, uh, Tuesday I think as opposed to Monday.
1: Yeah, so look, it was definitely getting different competition. I think it's very hard to explain ratings 40 years later, Yeah. but I guess we just note that maybe some of their best episodes weren't being seen by as many people as others. So we'll move now into a little bit of a talk about themes and threads. I guess the first question I'll ask you, Richard, is, is there a theme and a thread to this season bar, of course, the obvious ones we're going to talk about in a moment?
0: Probably my overall point, I think, really with the themes is it's very hard to look back on a series like Black 7 now with all the modern continuity-heavy series that we enjoy. This was made in the pre-VHS era. And we did, I think, make the point right at the end of the season, there is over a million viewers who watch Star 1 who hadn't watched The Keeper and potentially Gambit as well. Yes. So you do have to have that previously on Blake 7, where people who haven't been following the story for a couple of weeks can be brought back up to speed, that a modern series probably just wouldn't do now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We did note in a number of episodes, particularly something like The Keeper at Star 1, there were all those... So, when we control Star 1, that's right, Star 1 is the control centre for the whole You know, you
0: do get those conversations. You you, you do. I have seen comments over the years that, with a bit more thought, Blake 7 could have been Babylon 5 15 years early. But that's not really how TV is made then.
1: I mean, Babylon 5, if you missed it, you could go back and watch it again.
0: For sure. Although, one of the criticisms with B5 was that it could be a very difficult series to get into if you came in late. You really need to go back to the start and watch it from the beginning that's right there are probably episodes in series one that you could quite comfortably skip uh, hello TKO, but <laughs> that's an example. But, but
1: yes, there's a lot of Babylon 5 that works on something in Series 3 is a payoff for something that was mentioned offhand in Series 1. Yes. And you couldn't have done that in Black Seven in the 1970s. You just no. couldn't.
0: And B5 is the first series that is made with that sort of viewer in mind. Someone who is going to sit down and want to just pick through every episode and get all the little nuances out of it that they can.
1: Compared to something that came just before it like Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, even Trek. Even Trek is very, very much... You leave your characters at the end of the episode where you found them. And it's only post-B5 that the later DS9s suddenly bring in these whole arcs as well. And then Buffy's doing it, Roswell's doing it, and then, I mean, Doctor Who under Stephen Moff is probably the apotheosis for for that. (laughs) Whatever, Whatever you think of it, we're not going to go down there. Let's keep going down this path, though. We talked about this a bit in the last episode, so I don't want to retread too much, but specifically the Control Star 1 arc that he's clearly... In narrative terms, the big arc for this season, did it work?
0: I think so, yes. There there is enough there to keep the longer-term, dedicated viewer going. You sort of get that first little hint in Weapon... And then they mount the actual rating pressure point, and you see the aftermath in trial, and then you get to countdown and you get into that final trilogy. So there is a very definite payoff there for somebody who sat down and watched the entire series.
1: And certainly, that is my strong memory from when I first watched this, aged about 12, was really getting into that sense of, oh, their province told them to go find Dockley, they're going to go find Dockley. Yep. He's told them to go find Lurgan, they're going to find... Lugan. That really resonated with me as a 12-year-old.
0: There is. I mean, look, there's obviously some continuity stuff, and we did flag this during the episode discussions, that probably doesn't quite work, particularly, I think, in the last three-part arc.
1: Yeah, but I think that it gets the balance right in mm. rewarding the regular viewer without alienating the casual viewer, Yep, and laying the groundwork for what was to come in television.
0: For sure. Plus, there's also the thing, look, I think... Again, although we said they had more time in series two and whatever, there is probably still that bit of rush towards It's the end. still the
1: BBC in the 1970s. Yes,
0: the clock is still ticking. And look, Chris Boucher, I know, has gone on record as saying they did struggle because you had scripts from different writers and they were at different stages and things. You did have issues getting all the continuity points to line up at different times. And they did find that very difficult. I think he is also someone, though, who is a bit of a believer in you should be able to screen the episodes in any order. By that's The right. first one and the last one. so
1: Yeah, that's right. And of course, because it is the production of the time, yep. the directors are all working basically in silo. Mm. So George Petten Foster would be given his two episodes, go away and work on them. Via Lauren or here's your pair, go yep. away and work on them. And there wasn't that sense of, oh, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? Let's match it. No. So that does show up. But look, I think it works perfectly effectively. Another thing that I think is worth highlighting, and it's more of a theme perhaps than an arc, is the Blake-Avon dynamic. With you running the campaign on Earth, somebody has to take charge of all this. (laughs) You want the Liberator? Exactly. If we succeed, the destruction of control gives us both what we want.
0: Could be you're planning just a little far ahead.
1: Perhaps. And I'll start here by simply saying there is a feeling that builds across this season between the two of them that something is going to have to give there is a very real feeling by the time you get to star one of this spaceship is not big enough for the two of us (laughs) and you get some of those confrontations happening where by the time you get to star one actively planning how they are going to split
0: and i think particularly in star one because you do get Avon's announcement, really, of Blake and everything that he stands for. So you probably are left at the end of Series 2 that, with the raid on Star 1 clearly not resulting in destruction, how the Blake-Avon relationship is going to play out, given that the Federation is not destroyed.
1: Yes. So, the plan, definitely, and you see it going all the way back to pressure point. Mm. The plan in Avon's mind is that, at some point, they'll have a big enough victory, Blake will go off and lead the revolution, yep. and Avon can Whatever take... Whatever that might be. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Avon can take the Liberator and just fly around being wealthy. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, look, it builds very much across the season. Some of the best pieces of dialogue across this season are those Blake and Avon interactions. Let's be honest here. In series one, it was very much Blake's seven. Yep. Series two, it is the Blake and Avon show.
0: Yes, and some other people. And some other people, yes. Although, having said that, I did have a note here, and I'll drop it in now. The balance of power on the Liberator still very much seems to hinge around Jenna. Even though Jenna and Sally Navette herself aren't really getting much to do, the Blake-Avon dynamic at times seems to focus on which one Jenna will side with.
1: Yes, and again, it's a pivotal thing that it doesn't get called out enough, I think. There is the moment in pressure point where the crew deal with Blake and they say, we will come with you, but the deal is if this is looking like a suicide mission, yeah. you will pull out. Blake does not pull out when he should have, and it gets Gan killed. And I think from that point, Jenna particularly says, you know what, I'm never going to trust you quite the same again. I'm not walking away. No. But I'm watching you now. There
0: there is that moment in trial where Avon, I think, very clearly thinks, actually, if I do this right, they will turn. Yep. Unfortunately for him, it doesn't play out like that.
1: And the end of that is really that moment in Star 1 that we did highlight, where Blake and Avon are going down to the Star 1 planet, Mm. and Jenna's the one who says, Avon, just watch him and be careful. Because she knows that Blake can't be trusted. No, he to may make get the right them killed. That's yeah. right. So you do see that dynamic yeah. sitting in there.
0: I think probably looking at the characters themselves. We've mentioned a minute ago. that we've we've seen sort of ruthless Blake before. You know, he breaks that guard's neck in Project Avalon. Yeah. He threatens he's going to destroy Julian Glover's hands in Breakdown. Yeah,
1: and look, he blows up the base on Kentaro with all yes, that, all, that all the people
0: thing. in it. But there is a definite development in Blake across this season because it's quite early flagged. At the end of Redemption, you know, he says all he cares about is Earth. He's not interested in going and freeing the slaves and the system or anything. He just wants to go and attack the Federation. He's quite happy to deal with the Cosa Nostra over the objections of the crew because it helps him achieve his goal. Avon gets that wonderful line about using them and being in business with them as a subtle distinction that escapes
1: (laughs) (laughs) him. And, of course, it does end with the fact that the destruction of Control Star 1 will cost millions of civilian casualties and he is willing to do that if it brings down... The he, he
0: is. There probably is that crunch point, in a way, when they have the bungle raid in Pressure Point. Trial, Is it's shown that that's taken a real toll on Blake, and he's forced to recommit to the cause, really, at the end of trial, but I think that's really when perhaps that fanatical streak really starts to come out.
1: So let's move from the goodies to the baddies. Serviland and Travis. I will simply say, I think, the way these characters are used in the series is very different, do you think it's effective, good, an appropriate evolution, or not as good?
0: Servaline, I think her arc, or whatever you want to call it, across this season, is probably the one that requires the most head cannon. Yes. I think. I mean, look, she clearly winds up in a very different place from where she starts, but it's not really flagged or progressed across the season. You know, when Councillor Joban comes to visit her in hostage, it's clear she's on borrowed time. And given what you know in Star 1, she's probably making her little plans in the background and drawing up lists of the people who are going to be put up against the wall when the moment comes. That's right. But you don't really get a sense that she's actually manoeuvring for anything until the events of Star 1 clearly provide that clear opportunity. Okay, I can really take advantage of this.
1: Yeah. So I guess the change that I was referring to there is Series 1 is very much about... Travis as the Sheriff of Nottingham to Blake's Robin Hood and Servalan is kind of just a woman that says, go get Blake. King and, John in the background. Well, really. not I, even so... King John. She starts off very much as just someone has to give Travis his orders Yes, and someone has to slap him at the end when he's well, done that's it. that's true. Whereas what you do get so, is into... So is
0: it more the sheriff of... I'm just thinking back to the 80s um, Robin of Sherwood series. Yes. Is it more perhaps that Servalan is the sheriff of Nottingham and Travis is sort of, you know, Guy to Gisborne or whatever it is? <laughs> Guy of Gisborne, yeah. Look, look I think... Who just consistently fails at every end and turn?
1: Yeah, look, I think that is fair because Travis's role is to go and get Blake and Servalan's yep. role, as initially conceived is the person at the start who says, Travis, go get Blake, and at the end says, why didn't you get Blake? Yes. That's really all she's there for. Whereas in Series 2, I think she's actually playing on a much bigger thing. And Blake is a part of what she's doing, but he's sometimes almost incidental to what she's doing. You look at something like Voice from the Past, yeah. she's actually far more concerned with Governor Legrand and yeah, all of that revolution that's going on. And the fact that Blake gets involved is kind of just a nice little bit of extra for her the same with star one by the time she gets to star one she's actually not thinking about blake at all she just wants to get control or to stop the federation from being destroyed and at the same time travis goes from being the sheriff of nottingham to actually being an outlaw himself which i think is very very good for the series a because it allows some variety b it allows those characters to expand and c it means that we don't just have multiple episodes this season of travis goes and finds blake They argue, Blake wins, Travis walks away with his tail between his legs. (laughs) Because that, as we flagged at the end of Series 1, by the time we got to ORAC, that was becoming
0: unsustainable already. yes, Yes, it was.
1: So having made that point, I think we can't put off any further the Brian Croucher in the room. Look, I, will, I know you've got a few notes on this, Richard, so I'll make a quick point point then perhaps defer to you. Yeah. Watching back this series, Brian Croucher was a bit of a revelation for me. I definitely agree that there are moments when he doesn't know what he's doing, when he clearly isn't on the same page, yes. and, and they definitely stand out let's be honest, some of the more quotable moments, you know, and so are all of you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they stand out for a reason. Yes. Or stuff like Weaponware, it's clear he doesn't know what he's meant to no. be doing. I get why he has a reputation as being the weaker Travis. But I've got to say, watching back this series, when he was on the page, when he was confident in what he was doing, yep. he gives some really good performances. His exchange with Blake in Hostage even though there's some mad stuff in that. When he's sitting down, he's talking about, you know, failure. That's really good. I think we both flagged Gambit as being a really good episode it, for him. It is. He's strong in Star 1. And even Trial, look, I think that for the problems he has in some scenes, that confrontation with Par and... the there no some failure, very good stuff. Very good one. Control. So I know you had a similar point, so I'll let you take over. Yeah,
0: I did. I probably should preface this by saying... We are really doing this in the context of the Travis Mark II discussion, not the Brian Croucher discussion, perhaps. I think we probably should make that distinction. I think the biggest issue with Travis in this series is that all the stuff around him being less restrained, more insolent. Travis in the first season wouldn't have dared to actually grab Serverland by the throat. A lot of that was scripted, but of course the problem is it's lost in the recasting.
1: That's right. It looks like this has changed because the actors changed. Yes. But it was always meant to be a change in the character.
0: And really, Travis does have a very definite arc across the series. He has been retrained. He has his failures. He's then stripped of his rank. He's made an outlaw, which for Travis really is a big deal because the military... Is Travis. Yes. The uniform is all Travis has at the end of the day. That and his obsession about killing Blake
1: which eventually becomes a obsession with the destruction of humanity.
0: Yes. He really hits his lowest point, I think, at the end of Gambit. Blake's humiliated him yet again. His arms crippled. Servalane's just totally betrayed him. But... Yeah,
1: that imagery at the start of the episode, there is the once mighty space commander mm. who's sitting in a dive bar in a casino...
0: Dressed as Clint Eastwood. Yeah, <laughs> drinking a egg. <Vita-zade.
1: laughs> you know, that he, he has fallen a long way. And I think it's really effective. I think it is a shame... Given Brian Crouch's obvious acting ability, we see it in Black Sea. We do.
0: I think George Benton Foster, I think, almost seems to think he's there to be the pantomime villain, really. It's bigger Brian, bigger Brian. And that's a complete waste of his talent. It is, because he is a lot better when he gets under a different director in trial than he is in the first two. One note I did have here with Travis, if you look at a lot of the discussions around Travis 2 in fan circles, they always seem to be mitigation. It's always he came into an established role. He had a rubbish opening episode. He didn't get on with the director that he had for four of the eight episodes he's in, which I think is an interesting way to discuss the character rather than trying to play to his strengths. Because as we've said, Travis does have some really good moments in Mm. series two. Very good. And I also think probably as we get to the end of the series, he's really worked out how to play it. Chris Boucher and David Maloney did say, look, they hoped that the eye patch and uniform people wouldn't really notice that it was a different actor. But yeah, he does get better, I think, as the series goes on. And particularly, I think in the last three, he's finally worked out really what the role should be. But
1: look, I totally agree. I think that for the flaws in Travis 2, I think there are some much mm. better moments that I remembered here. But you've spoken there, Rich, about a lot of the mitigation and indeed Chris Boucher and David Maloney. I want to use this point to segue into them because. Yep. Those two really do start to take over the show now with Terry Nation stepping yes, this away. this is
0: very much Bruce Boucher's series, I think. So
1: it is a shame then to wrap up the Travis point and move on to them that neither of them sat down with Brian Croucher and said, this is what Travis was, this is how the character was conceived, this is how Stephen Greif played him, and, for example, said, he's not a working-class man made good, he is a military elite, and you wouldn't have got those Cockney performances. No. So let's say that... There are many strengths in those two taking over the show we're going to talk about now, but I think that is a weakness. But let's talk about this becoming less Terry Nation's Blake 7 and really more Chris Boucher's Blake 7.
0: Yes, I think it's Terry Nation's name on the credits, but by star one, this is Chris Boucher's series now. Yeah,
1: by the time you've got to the point where Terry Nation basically has walked away from doing the big series two-part finale, that is absolutely Chris Boucher's show. And what I think Chris Boucher brings to this is... Less that sense of action adventure that Terry Nation is very mm. much marked for, and these episodes certainly are marked for. Yep. And A, as we discussed, more of a character driven thing, but B, that idea of a bigger, coherent universe. You see, I think, in series two, and again, particularly in the Chris Boucher episodes, that Space World fits in to this universe. Freedom City is a part of a bigger universe. Yes. Space City is a part of a bigger universe. These people actually interact with each other. Crantor doesn't have a relationship with Serverland, but the Federation and Krantor are known to each other. They exist in the same universe. So you do get, I think, a much more coherent sort of thing as opposed to nations episodes being very self-contained. You know, Destiny, frankly, doesn't actually relate to anything else we see. Mm. The stuff in the web really doesn't relate to anything else we see. So that is, I think, very, very good. One thing I noticed we do get a lot less of, though, is on the Liberator stuff. And we noted in a couple of episodes, for example... They don't open on the Liberator. They open no. in this world. Boucher creates a world, and then he drops the Liberator into the crew it. crew into
0: it, yes. Probably almost that Doctor Who approach, really. If you look at some of the Robert Holmes era stuff, you set up a world, and then suddenly the Doctor comes in and just messes everything up.
1: Yes, and, and Shadow was a very clear example of that. where at six or seven minutes mm. before the Liberator crew sort of gently fly into shot. And, yes. and they're moving into this world. Yeah, you get
0: the idea that there would have been this whole story revolving around Beck and Hannah, and it's just the liberator basically come in and interrupt what's going on.
1: And we talked about a lot of these during the individual episodes, so I want to get more down into behind the scenes. Yep. One of the things about Chris Boucher taking over the show is obviously that things that he likes start to be emphasised, yep. and things that he doesn't like start to be de-emphasised. It is very clear that he enjoys <laughs> writing for Avon, Yes. It's very clear that he and Robert Holmes particularly like writing for Villa. Yep. Uh, It becomes very clear that they don't like writing for the two female characters. No,
0: Jenner, I think, particularly, perhaps.
1: Now, there is an anecdote. We'll give a series shout-out to Making Black 7. Yes,
0: actually, we haven't mentioned that for a few weeks. So We're probably long overdue. We are, we are.
1: Thank you for your work. And there is an anecdote that they talked about where Chris Boucher was giving an interview about his dialogue. And he said, look, script writers like him... They write dialogue in a very particular way. They try to be poetic about it. They try to be musical about it. It's not just get from A to B. And we see that in his writings. You know, like we had a whole segment called "What Cool Lines Did Chris yes. Boucher Get Avon." You know, he, he writes in a way that there are memorable speeches and lines and, and quotable, dialogue and, quotable yes. dialogue. and when you get somebody like Paul Darrow, and this is what Chris Boucher was saying, Paul Darrow, Michael Keating would see that dialogue and go, "I get what you're doing. I'm going to learn this word for word and give it its due." Sally Novett and Jan Chappell, he's basically gone on the record as saying were more interested in improvising and sort of giving the gist of what he meant by putting their own
0: spin on it. Yes, or complaining that they weren't getting enough to do. And his yes. response
1: to that was, Well, if you're not gonna do my dialogue right, I just won't write for you.
0: No. Now that is a choice. A really detrimental choice, I think. But yeah, look. Punishing the actors and really you can see how that would become a, a vicious cycle.
1: Yes. And that said though, in any ensemble show, there are characters that rise to the top and characters that sink down. Again, to look at something that's coming not far off from where we are now, the next yep. generation, Star Trek the next generation, yep. they didn't start that with Data necessarily being the one that's no. going to have every second episode's going to be a Data episode, but they suddenly discover that if they write good lines for Brent Spiner, he will just knock out of the park, the fans love it, and suddenly every episode's about Data. Worf. You know, it's just the guy in the back with a couple of lines in the pilot. Suddenly it's like, oh, this guy, you know, he can really deliver dialogue and you give him a few cool scenes, he'll do it. And the next thing is he's in the next 10 years of Trek.
0: Conversely, I get the impression Tasha Yar was devised as a fairly important character and becomes less of one, I think, as the series goes on. To the point that she leaves. Yes.
1: And the same thing happens here. Blake is obviously at the top because the show's named after him and because Gareth Thomas is a phenomenally good actor. But suddenly you get Avon and Villa. You do
0: find your breakout character very quickly.
1: Yeah, and the reality is for Avon and Villa to have more lines in the script, somebody has to have (laughs) less lines. There are only 50 minutes of running time every episode. And for the more time Avon's on screen, that means there's less time for Gan to be on screen. There's less time for Jenna to be on screen. And that is a shame because, look, Kelly, I think, is very, very underused in this series. And we really haven't talked about her at all. Um, no, I think that's true, actually. I think we will over the next few episodes. Yep. But the real shame is that Jenna is underused, but when she's used, she is used so well. And The Keeper particularly, for an episode that we were both didn't have in our top three, mm. she gives a fantastic performance. Yeah, she does. You know, when she saves the damn pressure point, she does it really, really well. Look, I don't want to dwell on this too much. I think decisions were made. I simply want to say that Chris Boucher did make the choice that he was going to focus on a couple of breakout characters. And clearly supported by
0: David Maloney. Oh,
1: absolutely. And look, I am certainly not upset that Avon and Villa and Blake and Cerviland are the big stars of this show now. I think that they are deservedly so. Mm. It unfortunately does come to the detriment of the others, and it is particularly unfortunate in hindsight that they are both the female characters. I don't think it's a choice because they were female, but I think that if you were looking today, you would have them as stronger characters. and Most definitely. And let's be honest, they find that the cast is too big.
0: Yes. And
1: Gary's yeah, written out.
0: And again, probably ignoring Callie for a minute, it's particularly with Jenna, because Jenna is still a very important character in terms of the dynamic. We just said a minute ago that the balance of power really on the Liberator is centred around her. But you're right, Sally, Nevette, and Jenna really have very little to actually do.
1: Yes, and the thing that really intensifies it all is that you've now got three new writers coming on Alan Pryor, Robert Holmes and Roger Parks Holmes particularly really grips on Avon Villa
0: yes one of the criticisms probably that's levelled at Robert Holmes is that he's a fairly old-fashioned writer and I would say that the two scripts of his we've seen this season I wouldn't say really are the pinnacle of his writing career
1: no that's probably fair compared
0: to some of what we got on Doctor Who yeah So we did say different writers picked up on different aspects of the series and different aspects of the characters and I think there was some unhappiness probably on the part of the cast that had different writers coming in and they probably didn't always focus on the things the actors themselves thought were important about their characters. So there was some unhappiness there and you do sort of start to get that dichotomy really of ideas being put forward when you don't have that singularity of Terry Nation's vision.
1: Yes, and where Chris Boucher is also dividing his time between writing his own scripts now and editing to some of them
0: and rewriting heavily others. Yes, probably the other point I had here, there is also, with the series in general, there is still that nagging idea that it's just sci-fi is kid stuff. I know Chris Boucher, again, has gone on record as saying he was really angry. Senior people within the BBC just wrote Blake Seven off as some dinky sci-fi show when they were actually attempting to do real drama. And because, of course, you said it, several hundred years in the future. Oh, that's just a kid's show. That's just rubbish. It's a Doctor Who anecdote, but Lala Ward, who'd been in Hamlet with Patrick Stewart... Yeah, very, very early in her career. Yes. Encountered him with the BBC, and he's like, what on earth are you doing Doctor Who for? It's yes. sci-fi rubbish. Yes, don't do sci-fi. That's not real acting. <laughs> Can and, you spell and irony, kiddies? Yes,
1: yes. The man who's now known for two roles, <laughs> Professor Xavier and, and Captain Picard. <laughs> and look, to give the Blake Seven variant on that there is that other well-known anecdote with gareth thomas who by this stage was perhaps not quite sure what he was doing in this series yep. his first love and his passion always was the theater and he bumps into sean phillips during the recording of one of the black sevens here you know, in the bbc canteen or the lift or something and they're old friends from the rsc and she's like what are you doing the show for mate you are so much better than this why are you doing this stupid kid show and i think look, that really did play on Gareth thomas
0: it did he'd been with the rsc before and i think the discussion was that he wanted to go away and do big stuff like that we're getting in front of you know several million viewers and whoever it was who was directing him at the rsc said well look, go away and do that for a couple of years and then of course you can always come back and be a real actor and do real drama stuff
1: yes go and do something with john gill and laurence olivier yes so, having left our regular cast in a variety of places, there, some well disposed to the series, some <laughs> perhaps not as well disposed to the series, we will pause our discussion there and move on to our season regular segments. So, we now move on to our regular segments, which for our season specials are different to our regular ones. Yep. And to kick us off, we don't have guest cast, we have regular, regular cast. cast. So in this segment, each series, we pick three regular actors and a member of the production team yep. to have a bit of a look at. I'll kick us off then with Sal Novette, who obviously played Jenna. One thing that emerges from this is that of the three actors we're going to look at today, mm-hmm. one of them had a very long, extensive television and movie career. Yep. Uh, the other two didn't. Sal Novette is somebody who definitely moved in and out of acting. She had times when she was very, very passionate about it, particularly at the time she was doing Blake 7. Other times she moved away, as we discussed, during The Keeper to do some more studies. Yes. A- and we'll talk a bit about where she went on in a moment. Her first acting credit was in You and the World in 1972, so not mm-hmm. that long before she did Blake 7. Yep. Uh, she also played Nurse Roland in General Hospital. She was in Who Pays the Freeman, which is quite a well-known in piece is of drama.
0: Michael J. Bird. Greek thrillers or, or drama series. And I think that is actually the part that got her the role of Jenna, I think, or certainly put her in David Maloney's mind.
1: Very much so. Now, after doing Blake 7, there's a bit of a gap, but then she does come back later to do 109 episodes of Emmerdale, which is a very big soap in the UK. Yes. in the role of Kate Sugden. So I remember the Sugden family, so very important there. Yes.
0: Initially she's not Kate Sugden I don't believe, but yes, yeah, she did eventually marry Joe Sugden, which is of course Fraser Hines.
1: Yes, one of the regulars from Doctor Who in the
0: 1960s. So Yes, but like a lot of soap opera characters, she unfortunately dies off-screen. <laughs> I didn't know that, but I think Emmerdale does have a reputation for that, particularly. Yeah, well, actually, Joe sucked himself. Fraser Hines killed skill screen.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She also did an episode of The Bills. She did A Touch of Frost. Lots of little parts right across, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the 2010s. She obviously got involved in acting a bit there and had a number yep. of credits. But Emma Dale and Blake Seven are by far the two things she's most known
0: for. Yes.
1: But she did do a lot of stuff outside of acting, Richard.
0: Well, she's certainly done a lot of stage work and a lot of theatre work. And that's not just acting. Look, she's also moved into directing and producing and I think also writing. She works quite a bit with younger actors. She also does a lot of teaching and workshops and those sort of things as well. But I think she works a lot with younger actors who've probably just come out of drama school and sort of looking, where to, what do I do now, or looking for something to get into. She's done a fair bit of work with a company called Theatre 503, which I think focuses on younger actors, younger writers, new material and stuff to actually give them a platform where they can practice their skills. So, yeah, and
1: she also had a lot of friends in the industry. For example, when Clive James wants to do a chat about women in sci-fi, Sally vedizy is got Most piece. definitely, yes. And, and that's just one example of a number of things where she really was quite a known person on the talk show circuit.
0: We did touch on that she got increasingly frustrated with her role in Blake 7 as time went on. I have seen interviews where she does say, look, part of that was her own inexperience because Blake 7 was really the first probably major TV role she'd had. She really hadn't done a lot of TV work. Prior to that, but we will see obviously how that plays out as we go forward.
1: So the next regular cast member we're looking at for this season is Michael Keating, who played Villarestell.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now I didn't realise until I got to researching this he played a lot of policemen. Right. In fact, his first credit is in 1969 playing DC Pierce in an episode of Special Branch. He is in Doomwatch. He plays D.I. Frost in Rainbow, the Reverend George Stevens in 54 episodes of EastEnders. Yes. Um, But there are another dozen cops that he plays in various different things across the place. But there are a couple of... uh Shall we say cult classics he also appears
0: in, Richard? <laughs> yes, well, we do like to do the Doctor Who appearances here, of course, at Spacefall, so we can't go any further without mentioning The Sunmakers. No, which
1: was, of course, written by Robert
0: Holmes. The thing with The Sunmakers here in Australia, because at that time we were fair way behind with Doctor Who, it actually screened only a couple of weeks before Blake 7 started here. Now, I don't remember looking at Villa in the way back going, that's the guy from The Sunmakers, but... I do certainly remember noticing it, I think, when The Sunmakers was repeated a bit later. And, of course, a lot of the
1: production team of the two shows did overlap. Yes, they a- And did. I have no doubt it played a part in him getting and looking for this show. Oh,
0: for sure. The other one I did want to highlight, probably out of his career, is uh, his role in Yes Minister. Yes. He's in an episode called The Death List. Yes. Where he plays, actually, another policeman, one of Jim Hacker's bodyguards. That's right, yes. Yes, but I think The Death List is, of course, probably best known as the Graham Garden episode. <laughs> He's in one scene, but what a scene. <laughs> yeah, it is. That is brilliant, that scene. <laughs>
1: but, yes, look, there actually isn't a long list of credits, particularly after about. In the mid-80s, other than his 54
0: episodes of EastEnders. He did quite a bit of theatre work. I think he also did a fair bit of work with Paul Darrow, because if I remember correctly, Paul Darrow ran a theatre production company there for a time, mm. and I think he did work with Michael Keating quite a bit as part of that. One note with Michael Keating, actually, he knew Jan Chapel. They were both at drama school together when they were children. Oh, right. Yeah, so he did know her coming into the series. One other note with him, he is also, of course, in Paul Darrow's last TV appearance, which is on the episode of Pointless Celebrities That's right. in 2018, which they actually won. They didn't win the major prize, but they were the team that went through to the final round.
1: No, absolutely, and that's actually a very good segue into the big point I had about Michael Keating, which along with Paul Darrow he is probably the member of the cast who has most embraced his time in Blake Seven And been very loyal to the show, been happy to talk about the show, and so credit to him for
0: that. For sure. And one final point probably with Michael Keating. Although, yes, he obviously is best known for Villa, he did actually audition for the part of Avon. When you think about the way
1: that he plays Villa in The Way Back, I can actually see that. That would have been very interesting.
0: It would have been an interesting take. I mean, Avon obviously now is forever Paul Darrow, but you notice actually it's Villa. He plays it with a slight... Hunch all the time because Michael Keating himself I think's about five ten, and he saw Villa as really being a small character, so he always sort of had that hunch going a lot of the time, and that's why.
1: So our third and final regular cast member for Series B, and you could probably work out what this one was going to be because he's only in one series, <laughs> and that is Brian Croucher. Now, as I intimated before. This is a man who has got a stack of television credits. Yes. Right across a long era. Over I'll,
0: 50 years worth of work.
1: Very, very much so. I'll give you just a small summary here. I know, Richard, you probably have some to add in here. His first credit was in an episode of Crossroads King's Oak in 1964. Right. He did an episode of Callan, Dixon of Doc Green, yep. 13 episodes of The Jensen Code. Three episodes of Softly, Softly Task Force, all playing very similar sort of roles. Yes. Sort of hard bitten, cockney. He
0: does specialise in those sort of roles, I think.
1: You then go on to a lot of roles, which I certainly actually remember spotting him in when I was a kid after sort yep. of getting to know Black Seven. Stuff like the 1977 Treasure Island, like there's Brian Croucher. Yes. The 1978 Famous Five he turns up in. Jungles. The Young Ones.
0: He is in The Young Ones, he's also in the comic strip, and he's also in Bottom, he has got a great turn in Bottom. He's in the episode where they steal Robert Llewellyn's fake leg and go to pawn it. Brian Croucher <laughs> is the pawnbroker, and he's sitting there trying to appraise objects through this pair of coke bottle glasses.
1: Yes, I must admit, I'm not a particular fan of Bottom, but he is very
0: good in that. And of course, yes, he's also in Filthy Rich and Catflap, but maybe we'll just move on. <laughs> <laughs> Although having said that, actually, the one scene he is in in Filthy Rich and Catflap is a pub owner, is great.
1: I must admit I haven't really worked through Filthy Rich and Catflap. It was it was too much for me, I'm sorry. <laughs> In the 1980s, he did get into a lot of more diverse sort of work. He turns up in Grange Hill. He does 104 episodes of EastEnders, playing Ted.
0: Yes, he's Kathy Beale's, uh, Julian Talfor's
1: brother. I'll just have to take your word on that (laughs) one, I'm sorry. Uh, He does 11 episodes of The Bill, playing eight different characters. Yes. there's one that he plays across a couple of episodes. Even in 2020, he was in Call the Midwife. And as we're sitting here recording now... He has three things he has filmed in post-production. Wow. So that is 50 is still years of just work.
0: Something I did see him in recently, there was a couple of gangster movies made probably about five or six years ago now, starring Ian Ogilvy and Christopher Ellison. We still kill the old way and we still steal the old way. Yes, he does have a small part in the second one, and when I watched that, it was, hey, that's Brian Croucher. <laughs> but, uh, and another one, actually, which is totally out of left field, for anyone who's a fan of hard rocker's twisted sister their video you can't stop rock and roll he's in that as one of the two okay. guys in the van who's basically following the band around us the style police oh, i must admit i haven't watched that clip <laughs> so i'll have to take your word for that one and he winds up in a sort of a curly d snyder wig
1: <laughs> okay and of course mentioning really strong doctor who blake seven crossovers here. well yes he did have a role in the doctor who's story the robots of death which was script edited by Robert Holmes, but written by Chris Boucher. Yes. And in fact, directed by Michael E. Bryant. Yes. So very, very Blake 7 heavy, that one. And again, a very obvious antecedent to him getting the role in Blake 7. He
0: had actually auditioned for Blake 7 previously. He'd auditioned for Blake. I think it's reasonably well known. He got into acting after being in trouble as a youth. He was a mod and I think was sent to prison for driving whilst his license was barred, I think. But he decided he didn't want to be a recidivist, as he put it. So what else could he get into? And eventually, after some work as a model, and I think as a red coat, at one of the British holiday camps, he moved into acting.
1: Yes, and let's be honest, in terms of credit numbers, one of the most successful of the Black yes. 7 cast.
0: One final credit we nearly missed is, of course, Shakedown. Oh, of course! Yes, where he played opposite Jan Chapel. Yes. And The Return of the Sontarans. Yes, so this was
1: a production that was independently made during the time when Doctor Who was off air for about 16 years. That's right. And there were various different people doing their takes on legally not Doctor Who but might as well would have been and you know if they got the rights to the Sontarans they'd do something about the Sontarans. This was in my view easily the best of those productions made.
0: I remember when we got the tape and we sat down sort of had the group watch. I remember really enjoying this.
1: Yeah and we all had the big takeaway as well that Brian Croucher was really really good in this he was and this was you know at the time where the Blake 7 VHS releases were just starting to come out so he hadn't really had the chance to reevaluate Brian Croucher's work in Blake 7 and we were really going off his reputation mm. and this was a real revelation that like this guy's a really good actor and Jan Chappell does really well as well I mean, we knew Jan Chappell was good
0: but she's really good in this as well she is but no I do remember really enjoying Chuck Dan yes likewise
1: And we now move on to our member of the regular production team for this season. Yes. And given that we've talked a lot about how he really took over the show in this season, we are going to talk about Chris Boucher.
0: And for NBA fans, I'm sorry we're not talking about the forward for the Toronto (laughs) Raptors. (laughs) We are talking about Chris Boucher, the writer.
1: Now, Chris Boucher had a career that was very prolific within a small period of time, probably about a decade, just a little bit more. He started off in 1968 working on Braden's Week. He then did some work on Dave Allen at last. Yes, he did. And you can kind of see where his wit and his timing
0: would have fitted in. With would have Dave fitted Allen, in very yes. well. Yeah,
1: yeah, very much so. Um, probably his big breakout is when Robert Holmes commissioned him to write three stories for Doctor Who. Yes. So he did three stories, very well regarded, I think. Yeah, certainly I think so, by us. Yes. The Face of Evil, The Robots of Death, which is very good, mm-hmm. and the Image of the Fendal. And when David Maloney had been given the job of producer of Black Seven and was looking around for a script editor, Robert Holmes was just the first choice he went to yep, and
0: just come off doctor who yep. that's right and Holmes
1: sort of said look i've just burnt myself for three and a half years <laughs> doing doctor who no thank you but can i introduce you to this chris Boucher guy he's really really good yep and so that really came out there post blake seven he did both script editing and writing on a number of shows many of them you would have heard of shoestring yes bergerac yep the bill in 1987 yep juliet bravo yeah. he wrote four doctor who novels in the early 2000s, which featured The Fourth Doctor and Leela. Yeah. But, of course, probably his other famous genre credit is
0: Star Cops. Yes, which I think he was quite proud of in his own way, but I think probably wasn't a very happy time, I don't think, for him. He sort of immediately clashed with the producer, and I think sort of went on record later as saying, really, given his experience on Black 70, he probably could have produced the show himself. Because he and the producer had very different ideas, really, on what the series was. And I think he felt that there wasn't a lot of faith from the BBC management in the show. You know, it was put in a fairly dead time slot. Wasn't really given a lot of promotion. On his argument with the producer, I think he was sort of almost siloed out of it, really. He did his five episodes that he wrote, sort of did some script work on the others, and then I think was largely shut out of the rest of the process. So, Yeah, it
1: only ended up running for nine episodes. My one sentence take is that it is a extremely interesting and clever and worthy concept yes. that when it fires is very good, but you can clearly see
0: it's a trouble production. I remember watching them when the VHSs came out in the early 90s. Yeah, It is a slow burn, and I can see probably why it would have struggled to find an audience because it really is a show I think you would have had to invest a bit of time in.
1: And I just can imagine him watching Firefly 10 years later <laughs> and um, maybe seeing what could have been.
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: So, Richard, our next regular segment is VHS covers, pass or fail. Oh, file. my
0: goodness. we've
1: pulled them out. We've yes, pulled them right. out. So we're just going to have a look at some of these video covers for old time's sake. Now, we'll start off with where we left off at the end of last season's special, which is yep. Volume 7, or Redemption, which... We said at the time, look, other than the Fibian, it was all about series T.
0: It is, and it's an interesting rendition of Harriet Philpin on the cover there, isn't it?
1: Uh, but very clearly all about redemption. I think yes. this is a very good past.
0: Yeah, I think so. It's got the mini-Liberators and stuff on it. Yeah, look, that's pretty cool.
1: The next one is Shadow and Weapon, which has a very good image of Servaland from... Weapon with that really ornate well, collar. And I
0: think she's really the only thing from weapon on that cover, I, I, I think, isn't she? I
1: think she is, but there's a very good rendition of Largo, who clearly the artist saw as being the, the main part of the episode.
0: <laughs> I think that's another good one. I'm yeah, giving that is. a pass. He's got his little ball of shadow there. He yes. has, yeah. yeah and Kelly sort of looking mysterious walking past some moon disc. Um. Yeah, it's rare that Kelly gets on a cover, so yes. that's, that's not too bad, so pass. Yes, yeah, I think so. Now we get to
1: volume nine, which is the Horizon Pressure Point one, famous for the O. This is Gan's last episode and he hasn't been on the cover yet. <laughs> which kind of, as I said at the time, gave away to me that this was probably the one he was going out on.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to say, because Breakdown actually is the swirly thing, isn't it?
1: That's right. <laughs> it's not the best rendition of David Jackson. The control tower's there, and I think that's obviously meant to be...
0: The row from the end of the episode when he's back in his traditional garb, yeah. But it
1: doesn't look anything like him.
0: No. Um, I'm failing that one. Yeah, that's a bit uninspiring, that one, probably. <laughs>
1: Moving on to Trial and Killer. This has got the spaceship that's seen in about thirty seconds of Killer. Yep. It's got the flea <laughs> in the corner. And it's got somebody wearing Travis's uniform with an eye patch. <laughs>
0: that doesn't really look like Brian Cranco. It doesn't
1: look anything like Brian Croucher.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's a file. I think so too. Yes. That's yeah. a shame. Yeah.
1: I really like this one, Hostage Countdown. Uh, they have picked what is clearly the best part of Hostage.
0: Yes, which is the space battle. Good move. Ba- yep. uh, Barry Jones, I think, was a guy who drew this. Good move,
1: Barry. Yep, that's a very nice thing there. There's a really good moody shot of Provine and the, uh, the Death So that, I think that's one of the best of the lot. It
0: is. I don't know if that's necessarily a great rendition of Paul Shelley, but that is a pretty cool cover. Yep,
1: that's a pass. Uh, we've got two more. Voice from the Past and Gambit, Volume 12. Really nice rendition of Krantor at the top there. Sort oh, of enough, I actually
0: thought that was Beryl Reef from Earthshock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Siobhan is there. Jenna is in pain. And we've got the space shuttle there, which we said was a
0: very cool part of yeah. the
1: episode. That's
0: generously oh, a pass. Well, I suppose it, it picks on elements from the story, even if it is a picture of Beryl Reef. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the final volume for this series is The Keeper, Star One. This actually has got quite a nice little portrait of... Brian Croucher there in in the hood. You've got the amulet from the Keeper, the Liberator in orbit around Star 1. Which
0: which he seems to be wearing as a handbag,
1: but yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, he's the only part of the Keeper that's mentioned there. Yes, indeed. A very nice little image of Blake, though. He did draw Blake fairly well. And you haven't
0: got the collection of household objects being the spaceship, so... Yeah,
1: I actually think that captures the episode really well. that is pretty cool. That's a good pass?
0: Yeah, I'll give that one.
1: Fair enough. So our next segment is where we pick our bottom three episodes... For the season. Yep. Richard, we've said you're going first on this
0: one. Am I? All right. Last season, we didn't do them in the right order. So I'll start with my third worst this time. I've got different reasons for these. For my number three spot, I've actually chosen Weapon. Okay. And the reason I chose Weapon, look, it's by Chris Boucher, and there are some good moments in there, but I don't agree with his assessment that it is entirely down to the production and the direction. Yeah. Uh, I do think there are some problems with the script. There is probably one plot thread, one element in there too many. The regulars don't really get a lot to do, so there there are better Chris Boucher scripts in this season. Much better Chris Boucher look, scripts. Because it's true, yes. Yeah. So that's that. My two and one are perhaps a bit more obvious. In my number two spot, look, I have gone for voice from the past. Okay. Oh not a snap Alright. Again, I was probably a bit more down on this episode than you were when we did the discussion. Yes. I think it has some very interesting ideas in it, and I think if you were to break some of those out and concentrate on them, you actually could have had some quite good scripts. But I think overall... And look, the scene with Legrand is great, where she gets picked up by Servaline, but there is a lot of other stuff in there that I don't think works, and it's got Siobhan in it, so... Sorry, that that was a big minus for me. That is just ridiculous, the Siobhan stuff. And your bottom for the season? And my last one, I've got two honourable mentions just before we do the last one, and they're for different reasons, and they're probably going to be controversial choices. One of them was Redemption, I'm sorry, because (laughs) I just think that was a bit of a wasted opportunity, and the other was Pressure Point, again, because that could have been a really spectacular episode, and it just kind of isn't. But my overall bottom one for the season is is Hostage. Snap. (laughs) And you'll probably have much the same points, but I'll just say Hostage. I know it had a lot of problems, but Hostage really overall is just an uninspiring mess.
1: So look, I will give you my three, and I'll start at the bottom since I've said what it is and there's no real suspense anymore. Hostage was at the bottom. I just think that it doesn't work. No. There are some very varied performances in there. John Abaniri is trying, but he's not always succeeding. Some of the other cast are not good. Croucher has a great scene and a terrible scene. Yep. It's just, it doesn't work. Go on, do it.
0: The word, the, the word. word, the <laughs> word. <laughs>
1: so look, that was my bottom. Yep. After this, I have to say, I really did actually struggle because okay. I enjoyed each of the other episodes in yeah. this season. For number two, regretfully, I did go with The Keeper because okay. even though I did find a lot to like about it when I watched yep. it, it is just eight times a lot of badly acting great big hero well that's people.
0: true actually lots of loud shouty medieval acting yes that's right
1: it just doesn't quite have enough material but as i say i don't dislike it no and number three look i went for a personal choice and that's killer
0: hey which
1: sorry i think we're going to disagree a lot on this words one. very carefully <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> no, go
1: simply because as i flagged during the episode there are a lot of disparate bits that i just think do not come together yep. at all it doesn't feel like a real world and frankly for the first half hour if not 35 minutes i was quite bored watching this the last 10 minutes is very good yep and for that reason again i kind of regret putting it in this list yeah but it just didn't land for me i'm sorry no fair enough so we'll move then on to our top 3 and i'll go first on this one yep so i'll start at the top and work my way down on this one and again i've made the decision to go very much with personal choices rather than yep. trying to do the objectively best because and i'll say now where i'm doing the objectively best there would be a difference.
0: Yep. This is your overall best.
1: So this is my overall best. I've gone with Trial. Okay. I actually think that is an incredibly well-written, well-acted, intelligent piece of television that I could watch again and again and again. Yes. So I'm very happy with that. Look, it was an honourable mention for you on the bad list. It's number two on my list for good, Mm -hmm. and that is Redemption. As I said at the time, I think that is just a... (laughs) wonderful piece of sci-fi adventure. I think that is classic Terry Nation. I absolutely love that episode. And look, part of it is because it inspired me so much when I was 12, but that is there. And so then that brought me to what was going to be number three on my list. Now, this is where I really had the choice between my personal number three and what I thought should be on the list Mm -hmm. objectively. I suspect that the objective choice will be on your list, so I don't feel too bad. I went with Pressure Point, though, okay? because once again, and look, I've really enjoyed the Terry Nation episodes this season, I just think that is a really good adventure. I love the play between Serverland and Kasabi. I love the way that Travis works in that. I love the tip over of the Blake character. I love Jenna coming home. I love the production in terms of the outside location footage, the costumes, it all just works for me as a piece of adventure. There is an episode there that I do regret not getting there, but I suspect it'll be on yours, Richard. Let's find out.
0: Okay. I actually was amazed we didn't get a snap in that list at all. That probably
1: shows just how even
0: this series is. There's a lot of good episodes. All right. I'll actually start from my third. So number three, I had Shadow. I said Weapon, look, I don't think it's a very good script. I do think on his second attempt, Chris Boucher, a much better script. And really, I think that's probably the moment he announces that he is now driving this show, really. Yep, that's fair. Look, I think Shadow in itself is actually a real cracker of an episode. I think there's some very good performances in there. Largo particularly, he's great. So that was that. And I've probably gone maybe for slightly more obvious choices for the next two. In number two, I had a Terry Nation one. I've actually gone for Countdown. And that's maybe... More a personal choice, but I do actually think that is just a good Terry Nation adventure.
1: It does everything that Blake 7 does very, yes, very well.
0: As we said during the discussion, including sidelining the female characters. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do think there is a lot to like in Countdown. It is really template Blake 7. Probably before I do my number one, and my number one is probably really obvious if you've listened to the discussions <laughs> we've had, I did really want to find a place for trial. It's probably the one I was disappointed that, look, I didn't ultimately find a space for. And I probably in some ways was a little disappointed I didn't find a space for one of the Robert Holmes scripts.
1: I did feel bad not having Gambit in the list.
0: Yeah, which probably actually makes my number one even more obvious, which is, of course, Star One. Yeah. Which I think is a phenomenal episode. For me, it is one of the best episodes of the entire series.
1: Look, I don't disagree. As I said, if I was trying to do the objective list of the best episode, it would probably be Star One. Yep. But look, I think it's very, very telling that we've between us picked six episodes that are all very very good if I'd had a fourth I would have had Star 1 on it you've said if you'd had a fourth you would have had Trial on it so I think those two have got that overlap but yeah look six very good episodes and that's before we get to Gambit and a couple of others so yeah look just shows how strong the season is
0: about the only one we didn't mention I think anywhere and that was Horizon
1: which kind of just sits in the middle I think it's got some very good bits and some
0: less good bits we've mentioned every other episode I think on one or other list
1: yeah we have there you go (laughs)
0: Which brings us to our player of the series. Yes. Richard, do you want to go first? Let's see if we're going to snap this time. I think going probably across the discussion, it might be fairly obvious where I've gone. I have gone with Chris Boucher. Sort of a snap. Ooh, all right. This is his season. As we've said, this is really where he takes control of Blake 7, and it really now starts to move in the Boucher direction.
1: Yes, look, I had two honourable mentions, and Chris Boucher was one of them, so hence I say it's a partial snap. Yep. My other honourable mention was Gareth Thomas.
0: Yeah, because I think you look. He actually would have been one of mine, so that's good. So
1: again, you look at the big memorable moments and him holding it together. He's just so good as Blake. I am giving my player of the series to Jacqueline Pierce. The number of times across these episodes where we said this scene with Servland was the best scene in the episode, indeed, or this was the best moment. You look at the way that she takes the character across the whole thing, and this is where it really, as we mentioned in our discussion earlier, Servland goes from being just the person who sends Travis out at the start of the episode to being a pivotal part of this universe, her own arc, and just such a good performance that I think with what she had to work with, you know, often one or two scenes. But you think about Gambit, Voice of the Past, Pressure Point, Mm. you know, all these scenes, star one even to some extent.
0: Yes, you are really struggling to find a bad Jacqueline Pierce or bad Cerveline appearance, yes. Even
1: something like Weapon, her stuff with Carnell, is again the highlight of the episode. So, yes, I went with Jacqueline Pierce as my player oh. of the
0: series. Plus, of course, he's just that blanket, Paul Darrow. But... And Paul Darrow is obviously <laughs> great.
1: <laughs> Brings us now to some letters.
0: All right, we do have some correspondence. Apologies to anyone who sent those in ages ago, and we're only getting to them now. But our first letter is from Eddie Cosby, who writes, Hi, Dave and Richard. Just a few words to say how much I appreciate your Blake 7 podcast. I am a long-time fan of the series and have started to watch each episode again and also listen to your podcast afterwards. I am not sure why most of your episodes have disappeared from the podcast site I go to, which is Podbean. Have we not been paying the bills or something? I don't know what's up <laughs> there. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> but I have found them here, a few, which is Hipcast, which is what we actually do use to host them. So uh, anyway, keep up the amazing work. Thank you, Eddie. Oh, well, thank you, Eddie. Thank you.
1: Our next letter comes from Rich Maxim. He writes, hello, Spacefall presenters. My name is Rich Maxim, and I've been a fan of Blake 7 since I first saw the show in my early childhood. I watched Doctor Who from a laundry basket as a baby, and I've always loved the wry wickiness of the writing and the colourful characters. It was always my favourite show, and I longed for more. It was a pleasant surprise when my family discovered Blake 7, which came to my local PBS station in the early 1990s. We found it by accident, but immediately realised it was something special. My father began taping the episodes, and we gradually built up a near-complete run. Unfortunately, we never saw the first two episodes, <laughs> wow. as we had stumbled across it during the third episode. They started with Cygnus Alpha. Well, Brian Blessed.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough.
1: It wasn't until just a few years ago that I finally saw these first episodes when I found the show online. In spite of the incompleteness, my family watched our tapes of the show countless times over the years and treasured them after the episodes were broadcast once we never saw them aired on television again and we were unaware of the release of the show on tape and eventually on DVD being in America where even Doctor Who was relatively unknown at the time Mm -hmm. that is very true That that would be true yes yeah there was a Doctor Who fan at the station who would introduce the episodes while dressed as a cross between the Doctor and Sherlock Holmes and floating around the screen. And sorry, listeners, you'll have to forgive the laugh in my voice because we've watched a couple of these. We have. Mike so we know Frisbee. what's coming. Yeah, yeah, Mike Frisbee, his name is. Yes. Uh, floating around the screen like an early 90s screensaver, complete with the black background and geometrical topographical patterns. Watching his bizarre presentations became synonymous with Doctor Who and Blake Seven for me, and I sometimes think the rest of fans are missing out if you haven't experienced his quirkiness. And Rich has sent in a link which we will tweet and post on our Facebook page because it is very strange. It is very
0: strange. (laughs) I know the stories about Doctor Who being introduced on some of the PBS stations by Howard De Silva to explain the plot and some of the Britishisms, I think, but this was really bizarre. Yes.
1: In the 30 years I've been alive, I've never yet met anyone who has even heard of Blake Seven, I've always hoped to find kindred souls who share my enthusiasm for this rare specimen, but to no avail, until I happened across this wonderful podcast last week. (laughs) I've been thoroughly enjoying your show. It's exciting to hear some of the stories about production and about the composition of the world in the show and its inhabitants. I always enjoy, much to my wife's chagrin, recognising the many great actors who make brief appearances throughout the show. (laughs) Your insights into the grittiness of the show and its unconventional approach to many of the subjects it encompasses are a delight to hear. I have to admit, I am constantly find myself saying, "That's exactly how I think about it" as I listen. Clearly, a good judge, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sound mind. I have always admired the resourcefulness of the crew in making the most of a shoestring budget. Certainly, there are plenty of things one could laugh about, but there is so much depth to the show that is lacking in other, more expensive productions. Mm-hmm. Please continue your excellent work with this podcast. I couldn't ask for a better one, and I'm so happy to finally discover that I'm not alone in my appreciation of Blake (laughs) 7. The US never seemed to take an interest in the show, but I wonder what the reception was like in Australia. I can imagine the unique connection to the characters that Australians might have. Thank you so much for your time and devotion. Down and safe, Rich. Maxim.
0: Well, I guess for Australia, look, it certainly never really penetrated the consciousness like Doctor Who did.
1: No, in fact... It was probably biggest in Britain, which is very rare for
0: British shows. Yes, because, I mean, Blake 7 here in Australia was shown once, repeated once, and the repeats were late at night, and then sort of consigned to the dustbin of history, as far as we were concerned. When they first aired here, they were shown 8 o'clock on a Friday night, so... It's not exactly junk time. And let me say, I am often surprised by the people I meet
1: who know Blake 7. Mm. And in fact, the background for my iPhone is the Liberator. <laughs> and I'm constantly amazed at the people who are just very quietly you know, at the end of a meeting or... So I say, that's the Liberator, isn't it?
0: There was that ad here in Victoria thanking everybody who'd been dealing with the COVID thing. And actually, smack smack in the middle of that. There's a bloke wearing a... A Blake uh, 7 t-shirt. And if you're listening to this, please drop us a note, actually, because we did <laughs> notice you, and we thought that was really cool. We did.
1: We did. So thank you for that email. We've got another, Richard.
0: Yes. Our next email is from Matthew Duck, who writes, Hi, guys. I enjoy the podcast. I am by profession an IT manager. However, I have a recording studio at home. Way before you started in the 90s, I did some tracks with B7 samples and songs. I recently remastered them. Hope you enjoy. Look for Bop Station on Spotify, sci fi tracks 2 and 20. I am NZ based. Thanks, Matt. I did actually listen to these, and we'll put the link in the show notes. We I, I did have a. We listen to these. Yes, uh, the samples that I listened to sampled both Zen and Avon. Thank you very much, Matt. We'll
1: make sure we share those with the listeners. Yep. A quick note here from somebody who emailed us, Hakoti and simply says, looking forward to hearing you every fortnight in 2020. Thank you kindly.
0: Yes, if only it was every fortnight.
1: Yes, let us simply say we would love to get this back to being fortnightly. Sometimes real life interferes, but we did make a decision at the very start. We wanted this podcast to be as good as we can make it, cover everything we wanted, do the research, take the time, and we don't want to get it out every fortnight, not so good we want to say. No. So, look, I'm sorry we don't get it out as regularly as we would like, but hopefully the work we put into it and the time it takes is worth it.
0: And our last letter, possibly actually comes from the same person, but it reads, Dear Dave and Richard, I have just started listening to your Space 4 podcast and re-watching Blake 7. I watched the program when it was first broadcast on the ABC, and there we go, an Australian, uh, Channel 2 here. I was unfortunately about to leave for my country teaching prac for six weeks, but fortunately my dad had just bought a VCR. I spent $21 of my $65.38 a fortnight studentship allowance and bought a BASF tape so they could record the show while I was away. For years after, my friend and I watched the tapes of the show. We wore them out. So much so that when we watched the DVDs, we were shocked to see that the clothes of the rebels and scenery outside in the first episode had patterns and colours. <laughs> the tape had been played so much it was pretty much black and white. I still have the tape. <laughs> Nice. I wish I actually still had mine because they had all sorts of really cool continuity yeah. announcements and all sorts of stuff. On yeah. Them. After watching the final episode of the series once... I've I've, I've, I've,
1: I've read ahead, Rich, and there's some spoilers in this, so we might just skip that. We might just skip that line, actually. Yes,
0: that's true. When our school received its very first computer, a very slow Mac, in maybe (laughs) 1997, 98, and one for our whole school, my Blake 7-watching friend and I went in at the weekend, and the first thing we downloaded was a page about Blake 7 bloopers. I actually think I remember the exact page you would have gone to. (laughs) Yes, I do remember that. And it downloaded line by line and took about half an hour. Oh, how times have changed. The second thing we looked at was a page about the professionals. (laughs) Good good taste. Yeah, that's pretty good. The joys of having access after hours. Thank you for the podcast. I think it could only be improved by more discussion of costumes and hairstyles and continuity, which can be rubbish at times. I look forward to watching along with you.
1: Well, season three is coming up, so there's a lot of opportunity for costumes and hairstyles. Yes,
0: indeed. I am also a Doctor Who fan. Troughton was my first Doctor, although I don't remember him very clearly. And The Goodies, too. I shall search out those podcasts. Please do, because we're actually quite proud of them. So, uh,
1: Yes, so The Doctor Who Show
0: and yes. The Goodies Pirate Podcast. Yes. And we probably should mention our friends at 42 to Doomsday as well. Thanking you kindly, Harky, A. Gilmore, and Hedy Lamar The Golden Labradors. Thank you very much for that. It was very good to hear. Thank you. So the final thing we
1: need to discuss before we finish up this episode is our look ahead and our expectations for Series C.
0: Mm.
1: Now, I might kick us off here because I've got a couple of thoughts. Yep. When I look ahead to Series C, I'll start by saying this is also not my favourite series of Black 7.
0: Well, I'd actually go one further and say it's probably my least favourite series of Black 7, so this will be an interesting watch for me. Yes.
1: Yeah, so look, when I look at this series, I know that in it is my absolute all-time favourite episode of Black 7. Mm -hmm. and a couple more that I have a lot of respect for and a couple more that I really enjoy. Yep. I also know that my absolute least favourite episode of Blake 7 is in here, and a couple more that if I was to now compile a list of my bottom five for the series, (laughs) they would have a pretty good chance of making the list. Yep. So obviously I think that I've got some quite mixed expectations here. Yep. And I think there's going to be a lot of variety and a lot of variability in here. Mm
0: -hmm. On the
1: other hand, I said at the start of this that when it comes to rewatching Black Seven, series two is one that I've probably watched the most of the most mm, often. Yep. Series three, I think unquestionably, is the one I've watched the least of the least often. Yes. And there are half a dozen episodes in this season that I have not watched for a very long time. And
0: probably when we were both watching them on TV when the repeat ran the late 90s. Yeah, very, one. very possibly. Yeah.
1: And so I'm actually looking forward to seeing some of these episodes again. I don't know if I'm going to discover that they were classics I've been ignoring for twenty years. Or whether they're going to be episodes like The Keeper where, although it wasn't the best episode, we walked away from that saying there's stuff that we had missed Mm. and that were quite worthy. I think this will be a very varied season, but I'm also hoping there's going to be quite a few surprises in here.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Having just said that it's probably my least favourite season overall, I do acknowledge there are some very good episodes in there but I think its lows are very low.
1: That's my memory, yes.
0: Yes, that's my overriding memory as well. So I will be interested to see if that changes. Probably one final note from a storyline perspective, and this is kind of hard if you know what happens, but we did say that Star 1 very clearly wrapped up the first two seasons worth of storylines. We had the whole thing was Control, Serverland's now president, Travis is dead, etc. So... It will be interesting, really, to see how the series deals with that and where we left our characters as we jump forward into the next batch of stories. So yeah. this will be an interesting watch.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that ended in Star 1. Yep. And it did end on a cliffhanger. And where that goes, in terms of style, theme, the mm. whole thing is going to be very, very interesting. I actually think that, unlike Series 2, where I thought, great, there's a lot of great episodes coming up I just really want to watch. Yep. I'm kind of even more interested in this next batch because... There's just, I think, going to be a lot of surprises Probably for from us. an
0: objective standpoint, yes, yeah. I agree. And yes, like you, there is a lot in here I probably haven't watched for quite a long time. So I am really relying on my memories that they weren't very good.
1: So I think that's really where we stand. Yep. Going into this very, very open-minded, I think. Yeah. So we've summed up series two at length now. I don't think we need to say anything more. We both really enjoyed it. Yep. There's a lot of great episodes. Even our bottom threes, we were you know, getting quite reluctant to put stuff in there. Yeah. So. Very, very positive. I think that we've uh, done all we need to do. Mm -hmm. So next time you listen to us, we'll be talking about Aftermath. Yes. But in the meantime, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Resume course for Sarin. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake Seven.
0: what it is worth I have always trusted you from the very beginning.